dear listeners, uh, we have another edition of the Remnant Podcast. I should be clear with you guys, we are actually recording this at the end, uh, right before Christmas time, right before Christmas, because I will be away, and uh, we wanted to have something in the can, so we will try not to do too much dated stuff. Of course, if we're all in a pile of nuclear ash by this time next week, it really won't matter anyway. This week, I have uh, my friend and uh, gossip partner from the northernmost southern state and the southernmost northern state of West Virginia, uh, Chris Starwalt, who's the Fox News politics editor. Po- politics editor. There used to be a digital in that time. Right. That's when we were trying to be forward looking. It's I, all ba- we're all, we're only looking back in regret now. Ah, I see. I see. <clears throat> so I should also say that I am. It has been brought to my attention more than once that I have yet to have a female on this podcast. Wow. And I was supposed to have Kristen Soltis Anderson on, who and- <laughs> I, I think we will both agree is very smart and talented and lovely person, but as as two essentially unmade beds of big men, mm-hmm. she's also just easier on the eyes than you are. Accurate statement. Yeah. Broadly. So we're going to have to fix this at some point. We're looking forward to having her on. Well, she th- couldn't th- make it. Thanks, thanks for making me a accessory to misogyny and creepdom. Yeah, well, thank, thank you. There you for, go. Thank, thank you for, for inculpating me. Wait till I make you read some Bigfoot erotica. <laughs> <laughs> You're too late. So um, uh, Chris is also the co-host of a podcast with the, speaking of lovely and talented, Dana yeah. Perino. And so before we get in, we're going to do a little rank punditry, but not much, because right. it, again, it's dated and all that kind of stuff. First of all, give us some uh, insight of what it's like to work with uh, with uh, Dana. Well, first of all, we have a better in-the-can year-end podcast than you do, because uh, Dana's husband, Peter, uh-huh. man, and I had a trivia, a, a political trivia Every week we close yeah, the podcast sure. with political trivia. And Peter and I <clears throat> had a showdown on British and American political trivia. And if you are a big dork, and I know you are, uh-huh, uh-huh. you will find it, I think, quite exciting and entertaining. Okay. The So is he better at American political trivia than you are at British political trivia or vice versa? Or P- Peter is very good at all of it. The thing about working with Dana is this. You want to think that she is not as nice and as conscientious and as thoughtful as she is, yeah. and then she is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, because uh, for me, it would be comforting if she was a phony, because yeah. then I could say, like, well, see, they're all phonies. But in fact, she is as, and I think the one thing that makes me so happy that she's hosting our 2 o'clock hour now, her sense of fair play yeah. and her sense of even-handedness, and it has been really great to watch her blossom as an anchor, because... I don't think she feels as comfortable telling other people what she thinks yeah. as she feels in t- talking about the news. And seeing her flourish in that space is really cool. Yeah. Now, when I first got to know her, because, I mean, let's, again, let's be, be fair. What is it they say in Almost Famous? Uh, um, is that line where he says, come on, let's let's face it. His looks are starting to become a problem. You know, <laughs> Dana, too, looks like she's aesthetically fitting of the stereotype of a blonde woman on Fox. Mm-hmm. But... She also looks like she could play the sort of, I don't know, the Ottumwa, Iowa community theater production of Grease, <laughs> where she plays Sandy, you know? That is the weirdest compliment that has ever, <laughs> ever, ever been given to a woman, I would say. But uh, but it's she, clearly a compliment. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's, she looks like a milk-fed Midwestern sweetheart of a gal, and yet she's really, really friggin' smart. I shouldn't say and yet, that's not the right, point right, I'm trying right. to make, but when you, when you meet her in person, I mean... 
I kind of thought at first that she was going to be more chipper. Mm-hmm. And it turns out she's actually pretty serious. I, too. I, I, since we're recording this, we're not talking about uh, you behind your back, Dana. If you if you hear this, I uh, her what I call is she is aggressively cheerful. Yeah, 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 yeah. She yeah. she she is not glib or chipper as you say. She is yeah. not like a la di da. But what she is is she's going to have a good day. And damn it, so are you. <laughs> <laughs> it's the it's the rule following Scandinavian in her. Okay, so let me just, this is all, lets people think there's subtext here. I mean, the, the major issue is, of course, um, I find her shameless promotion of her dog outrageous. <laughs> uh, there's, I mean, I'm, what I do is tasteful and new, has you news are, value. You are essentially, we rate dogs, <laughs> posing as a political pundit at this point. I just want to point out. Um, like, I know your dog's names. I know about your dogs. As, well, as you should. But, it, it, look, she, she brought in... You know, a, a, a Hungarian dog to do jobs American, American dogs, dogs wouldn't, wouldn't do. do. All, I, all I can say is that Hungarian dog has written a New York Times best-selling book, yeah, and your and your dingo is just looking for squirrels and catching them and catching them. Okay, okay. fair, fair. All right. So anyway, enough with the the silly chit chat. We love you, Dana. I just want to say that. <laughs> At some point, I'll be on your show, and some point, you'll be on this thing. <laughs> and uh, so we're recording this basically the day where the house is supposed to. Make up for some mess with with passing the they're cleaning up the question about paygo and right. no one will care about this Pre- presumably no one will care about this next week because uh, this should just be scorekeeping but what it has to do with essentially not that you have to care about this uh, but what it has to do with essentially the Republicans build a tax bill like if you and I were trying to build a, a hot rod funny race car uh, knowing nothing about it we're like putting nitrogen tank here and what we're and what they're saying essentially is we'll fix all of these problems later right we're, and I I have a belief personally that reconciliation and the bird rule and all of that stuff should when we talk about what there are rule reforms that are needed in Congress and in the Senate there is a lot of focus among Republicans now about lowering the threshold for non-fiscal legislation to a simple majority mm. long before I, I of course am a I join Roy Moore in one of the careful in one of the amendments <laughs> after the tenth that has been problem, I I can only really identify one that is a real stinker, and that's seventeen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that has caused uh, un, unknown problems to the Congress and it, its proper function. But I would say the biggest problem they're facing from a rules perspective is the inver- is the opposite, which is not the sixty vote threshold, but in fact the degree to which the norm is now gaming. The bird rule right. and reconciliation to try to pass legislation, and I also think that they ought to get rid of the CBO. The, the, those poor people, those poor bastards at the CBO, that are compelled every time to score a question. If if I put in a, a a line in this bill that says that Care Bears will be the official stuffed plush animal of the United States of America, how will this affect Care Bear sales in 2024? Right. They don't know. Right, right, right. And they're basically saying, we don't know. So that's a very long way of saying they have, have this jury-built Rube Goldberg tax bill that is trying- no <laughs> <laughs> Or the patent money would be awesome. <laughs> it would. Uh, but the, they have constructed this thing in an effort to defeat the rules. And as a result, for the next decade- we will be revisiting this legislation yeah. over and over and over and over and over again. And the Republicans promise it'll be fine because no one will let taxes go up on middle class people. No one will let this happen. No one. Well, sometimes they do. And, right. and as we saw with budget sequestration. Right. 
if never say if Congress failure is not an option. Right. Well, that's, that's right. No, I I, I want to. I was telling Rich Lowry back during the one of the rounds of get rid of Obamacare stuff mm-hmm. that we should um put what's the name of the parliamentarian of the Senate? Uh, some, I'm I'm going I'm going with uh, uh, Mabel. Okay, let's call her Mabel. Yeah. I think it's Mabel, right? Yeah, it's a woman. Yeah. It sounds like a Mabel. Yeah, and uh, I was like, we should put we should Photoshop a crown on her and call her Queen of America, right? Because right. she basically unilaterally, sort of like, you know, in ancient Rome, it was a very serious position to be the high priest who cut open a dove and looked at the gizzards or spleen of a bird and proclaimed, ah, the, this augurs well for war, you know? Right. And, and people made huge decisions on this. I'm not saying that the parliamentarian isn't bringing reason and, and logic to this, but ultimately it's a matter of interpretation of our arcane rule that decides whether or not trillions of dollars get spent or not spent, and I think that's sort of nuts. I, personally, I think everything should be basically settled by trial by combat at this point. Well, I, you know, one of the things that I've always... Can I ask you a question? Uh-huh. How old are you? I was thinking about this writing over here. How old of a human being are you? I was born in 1969. So you that... shut your lying mouth. Why, why are you saying that? So you're my you're about my brother's age. So I'm 42. Uh-huh. Um I was born in 1975. And pretty pretty crappy year I got to say. Except for yeah, this yeah. guy right here. Yeah. That that was the fulcrum point. Um and I thought about writing over here that I the thought occurred to me. Oh, I grew up reading you and then I thought, no, no. well not really no. because you're only 7 6 years yeah, older yeah, than yeah. I am. Yeah. But what occurred to me was that your arrival as a columnist, your, you were the first intellectual, certainly on the conservative side, that felt like you were of the new generation, like of yeah, the yeah, new yeah. generation. Gen X, free to talk pop culture kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and um, your success, I'll put it this way, one of the great things about my job and my life is it's sort of the being from Wheeling, West Virginia, and I thought I had the job that I would have for the rest of my life when I was 28 years old. I was a political editor of the Charleston Daily Mail in Charleston, West Virginia, and I was like, I'm, I've already, I've already succeeded. Right. I nailed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the fact that you talk to your guests about what's the thing that surprised you most about Washington, mm-hmm. I'm surprised about Washington all the time. I've been here for a long time now, but I'm surprised all the time that I'm sitting here talking to you that I that I was hanging out with Brit Hume last night. Sure, sure. That, that all of this stuff, and that's the part that surprised me most. So we should tell the listeners, this is the day after the special report uh, Christmas party at the Dubliner where, where Brett Baer very generously rents out the whole place for f- not just special report people, but sort of Fox friends from the D.C. office. There's a long history to it. And, uh, and Chris and I and... Um, Charles Hurt. And Charles Hurt and Molly Hemingway yep. and a couple other people that listeners probably wouldn't know, we in the sing-around section where we did the 12 Days of Christmas, <laughs> we were the fifth, five golden rings, and we knocked it out of the park. Everyone concedes we were the best at that. Because and we were only, of course, importantly here, measuring by volume. That's right. <laughs> but Sydney, see, I had a special advantage. At National Review, this is more behind-the-curtain stuff, at National Review, it has been a tradition for some five decades to do a um, sing-around on the 12 Days of Christmas. But we do it, uh, the editor, so Rich, um, has to do a parody. And it's like, and this one, this year it had all this stuff about, you know, um, 
I can't remember what the the the, the parody of things were. It was mostly Trumpian stuff, but. Every year, Jack Fowler, who was the publisher of National Review, is now the vice president of the National Review Institute, has this amazing singing voice. And the thing I knew going into that last night was that Five Golden Rings is the anchor Gotta position in this yep. thing, right? Gotta have it. And But Jack sings that part alone. Everyone else is split up into groups. And Jack has this mellifluous songbird of a voice. So everyone else is just screeching through you know, booze breath and hoarseness. And then... Uh, Jack would build out five golden tweets, <laughs> and it's always hilarious, you know, or whatever the thing is. As, so. a, as opposed to our approach last night, which I would say sounded more like uh, a, a a floor movement at a Ulster Unionists rally. It yeah, was, there was some of that. It had, 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 had a different I mean, vibe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> I wouldn't surprise me if some people then left to go firebomb a British hostel or something. Whatever it takes. Yeah, yeah. whatever. It, it's, you know, it's Christmas time. All right, so we should stop this. Yes, yes. Um, get, ba- get back to the important More move. important thing. Podcastery. Um, Do you? By the way, you seem to like it now. I'm, I'm surprised at how little I dislike it. <laughs> Which is <laughs> like progress. many things in life, like yeah, many yeah, things yeah. in life. Yeah, no. And you gave me the advice to stop complaining about it and stop breaking the fourth wall and just just. Well, no, do no. It. it wasn't. It wasn't complaining about it. It's that. Well, first of all, the, Dana and I had the advantage with our podcast that we did it for six months yeah. before we knew that anyone was listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then one day they were like, "Oh, you're number two. And we yeah. were like, "Really? Yeah." Uh, and we didn't know. So we were already down the path and very unselfconscious. And for us, the thing that we found that was nice was it was a good opportunity to catch it. it was When else in our lives did yeah. get – I'm not going to have 45 minutes to talk to you. I haven't had 45 minutes to talk to you this year, I bet. No, that's probably right. That's probably so, right. So there are, there are, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great thing. And you're good at it, though your ad reading is just deplorable. Yeah, well, that's fine. <laughs> um, so uh, – I noticed that you didn't have any problem with my erotica reading. Anyway, um, <laughs> I do the homework. I do the homework, Jonah. All right, so we're going to have to do some uh, evergreen kind of uh, meta-analysis stuff okay. here. First of all, do you think – we didn't finish the punditry because we got into a cul-de-sac about parliamentary procedure. Do you think the tax bill is going to end up helping Republicans in 2018? I think uh, I'm going to say that Josh Crossauer at National Journal – I will not I, I will not steal it entirely – but I will. I it will inform my thinking very much on this subject, because he talked about the new moral majority voters, but they're on the left or they're voting Democratic this time, mm-hmm. and the degree to it. So, James Carville is famous for a lot of things, um, and I, uh, <laughs> I bet he's keeping a very low profile these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But James Carville is most famous for It's the Economy Stupid, right. right? Political history remembers him as the guy who in 1992 went viciously after, aggressively after George H.W. Bush on the economy, drove it home. This is it. He's also, just to be fair, he's also very famous for popping out of John Hurt's stomach at the first at the end of the first <laughs> Alien movie. But that's a different thing. So. That's fair, 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 fair. Okay. That's where he got his SAG card. <laughs> um, the, the, I'll put it this way. The arguments of people like Francis Fukuyama or um, what's his name, the guy who always talks to his taxi driver, Friedman. Uh, yeah, Tom. Friedman. Not, no, yeah, Tom. Yeah. Uh, basically, were that capitalism, it, the 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 engine of capitalism will crush tribalism, and the world wouldn't. No two countries that have a McDonald's have ever gone to war with each other until they did. Mm-hmm. That thinking, as applied to international affairs 
was very much applied to domestic affairs in in the argument that the only thing people about care care about is the economy. That's a relatively new concept. Mm-hmm. That so it used to, people vote their pocketbook. Yes, on taxes and these things. We're in an era where, for some reason, the economy is growing at a good clip. I and I hope I'm not jinxing anyone, but you know the the markets are white hot. Yeah, uh, all of these things continue to happen, and yet the party in power is in heinous odor. Yeah, you know how bad off Republicans are for 2018 when public opinion strategies, which is the is the best biggest Republican pollster operation. They're the this is Bill McInturf and his crew. This is the creme de la creme for the GOP. So they do a poll to basically say, hey, the tax stuff, wait and see. It's the, passing tax legislation. It's yeah, it's unpopular now. It looks unpopular now, but there's huge undecided and everything's unpopular because essentially Republicans are unpopular. Mm-hmm. So anything Republicans say that they like, it said so give it t- pass. Basically, the argument being pass it. And then people will like it fine later when they get bigger paychecks. In that poll that the Republicans put out, they were down 11 points in the yeah. generic ballot to Democrats. Yeah. So this is, again, this is their best case scenario. Yeah. And they're still getting creamed. So if the economy's so good, why is it so it's not just the economy stupid? And Crosshour put the pieces together really well in talking about the new moral voters. Mm-hmm. And these are the pe- women who voted against Roy Moore in Alabama. These are the people who take such moral offense mm-hmm. at Trump or things about the Republic or whatever, that even if the economy is good, they feel bound. And so having those basically African-American and minority voters who are voting again on social or moral issues in, mm-hmm. in many cases, now combining with suburbanites voting on social or moral issues. Right is a, a telling thing. It, I think it says a lot about our moment. Right. I mean, one of the things people keep forgetting is that the GOP base is actually not the what the media thinks is the prototypical Trump oh, voter. Reach. It is It is a fairly affluent suburban voter. Yes. Right? Married, bourgeois, putting kids it lives in near. It lives near a pottery barn. It, yeah. It, it can right. reach a pottery barn in, in, in with ease. So there's a funny little, just hearing you explain this, because I think, I, I think you're right, um, my first job in Washington was working for a guy named Ben Wattenberg. Yeah. Ben Wattenberg and Bill Salmon, uh, Bill, Bill Salmon, Bill Scammon, uh, wrote uh, a um, book called uh, The Real Majority, which Pat Buchanan and Kevin Phillips read in 1972 and used it with Nixon. It was supposed to be a blueprint for helping Democrats win in the off-year elections and then again later in presidential elections, and instead no one... Not enough Democrats took it seriously, but Republicans read it, and Nixon used it as part of his moral, uh, silent majority stuff, law and order, and all the rest. And that book is what where we got the phrase "social issue" from. Mm-hmm. And and so I feel like Ben would be very cross with me if I didn't point out that um, people always have voted on always. social issues and always always vote on culture. They vote on the economy when the economy is. Bad, but also when the economy is a stand-in for a much more complicated complex yes. of cultural and social issues about right track, wrong track, and and all of that kind of thing, right? Well, I th- I think I'm I'm ready to. There's there's some statistics I'm prepared to bury. Uh-huh. Congressional approval, 
let us be, let let it, let us uh, offer a, a brief benediction over the yeah. grave of congressional approval, which of course, as everybody always knows, Congress only has a seventeen percent approval rating. Well, how come it has a ninety seven percent incumbency retention right. rate? Right. Uh, and the answer is, I hate Congress, but my congressman, who I right. met at a barbecue, seems right. like a pretty good guy. Right. So that one I want dead. The other one that I want dead is right track, wrong track. Mm. Right track, wrong track decoupled as so as. We sorted ourselves into oblivion. Right track, wrong track. Partisan ID is so strong now. Well, not partisan ID, but but partisan affiliation, sense yeah. of attachment is so strong now that metrics like that sort of cease to matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's a lot of things that end up just being another way to ask partisan ID. Right. And right. so do right track changed wildly with old people when Trump was elected because they right. elected him. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And – the the degree to which survey taking polls and this business had the the Heisenberg effect here is not to be discounted. The way in which people now understand their participation in polls, so polling gets harder with more savvy consumers. Right. Polling also gets harder when there's disgusting misinformation about polls pumped out all of the time, yeah, yeah. and also crappy polls that are pumped out that so. Just in a word in favor of polling, if I may, it is now so cheap and easy to do a bad poll that the the space is full of chaff. Yeah, yeah. There's all of this bad polling out there that you can do by turning on a machine that robo dials people, and then the press one if you want to make America great again, press two if you're a dirty commie. Right. And those poll, as as we know, those polls can be predictive or not. Yeah. Whatever. The work of doing real opinion research is expensive and time-consuming yeah. because you have to put real human beings in seats to pick up telephones to call other real human beings. Yeah. And the people making the calls have to be real. They have to be good at the, the – yeah. you need college to – you cannot go – this is not like finding people for a, a inflatable rat union protest outside of a thing where you can just go hire people for $10 right. to go outside and beat a drum. You need people who can conduct a real interview with people over the phone. It's expensive to do real polling. Yeah. And it's valuable. And yeah. it's all of those things. But the degree to which voters understand now when they answer the phone, is the country going in the right direction or the wrong direction? This is the, the first cue that they're thinking about is, is this good for my party or right. bad for my party? Right, right, right. So um, actually, there's a, I believe it's called the Hawthorne effect, which is similar to the Heiser. Heiser Meyer Hawthorne? No, I, 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 no, uh, and the I I could be getting this wrong. It's it's old social science, but I think it's called the Hawthorne effect. Someone will correct me. That that, that actually sounds like a movie that like uh, Robert Wagner would have been. <laughs> um, um, yeah, it was it was actually the little remembered serial uh, uh, sequel to the Parallax View. <laughs> exactly. But um, no, uh, the Hawthorne effect is sort of like what your your point about the Heisenberg principle, which is not a reference to Breaking Bad, is that. If the subjects know that they are being studied, they yep. behave more differently. They behave differently. Ah, thank you, Jack. I, his cage, by the way, Jonah, is much more spacious than no, I No, it is. And I, 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 I put fresh torn up newspaper at the bottom every single time. Uh, the Hawthorne effect, I was right. My God. <laughs> uh, also referred to as the observer effect is a type of reactivity in which individuals modify an aspect of their behavior in response to the awareness of being observed. And so when people know they're being polled, they respond differently. differently. 
uh, I mean, they, people always knew they were being polled, but now they have a conscious thing about being polled. And they're aware of the degree to which the polling will cycle back into the narrative. Right, right. right. And they're aware that the president is going to tweet the poll or not tweet the poll or the other side are going to do this. Yeah. So the the degree to which both of our, you know, I take no position on politics. That's not my job. I have my own weird basket of snakes of yeah. political views that I hold, but that is that's not my job. And that's, I mean, we both want to restore the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but that's well, a different topic. Well, duh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's just about uh, better access to spiced meats. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the I am a great believer in strong parties. Yeah. I am a great believer in a strong two-party system because faction is unavoidable. I totally agree with the Federalist that it is unavoidable function of liberty. If you have liberty, you will have faction. Right. Because if you allow people to arrange their own affairs, they will arrange them into factions. Right. It Coalitions is, of interest. It's, yeah. the, it's, it's the nature of it, – it is our nature. So I think that the two parties I'm, – I'm of the, the belief that the two-party system has served America remarkably well, mm-hmm. uh, both as a cooling dish for in, intemperate sentiment, um, but also as a means by which we can – so the perverse incentives of duopoly that we're now experiencing, that why we don't have immigration legislation, why we don't have these things, yes, are a function of having a two-party system. But I would say that one of the most pernicious pieces of legislation of the past generation still stands as McCain-Feingold. Mm-hmm. And when you weaken parties once, right, so you right. Take, the, take soft money away from parties, you, you pull them back, and then the double whammy is – that on a very sound sounding argument, the Supreme Court then in the Citizens United decision says, actually, speech is speech. Right. And the Congress, without a constitutional amendment, cannot pass a law saying that you can say this hundred you can say this hundred and twenty days before the election, but Jack may not, right, is unconstitutional. So you take the double whammy, you take the money away from the parties, and then you and then you just a few years later allow these super PACs and outside groups to rise up. We have defeated parties. We have pointless yep. parties. Right. All they do is stage a nominating convention. Right. And other than that, they're, they are zombies. Yeah. No, I agree with that entirely. And it, that's the one of the weirdest ironies of the moment that we're in. And I keep bringing this up on this podcast. But, it, you know, 50 years ago, if I asked you if you were a Republican or a Democrat, I would need to ask a follow-up question to find out if you were a liberal or a conservative. Right. Because right? Yes. they were not ideological identifiers per se. Right. And there were coalitions of interests and they had some cultural relevance on certain issues and Blah, 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 blah. And so what's weird is that we are more partisan and polarized than ever along party lines, even as the parties themselves are weaker than they have ever been in American history. Right. And and that is very dangerous. And the reason that the, I think that it's very dangerous is that when you have the – there is not a – we were joking before we started recording about the, the phrase no controlling legal authority, yeah. Al Gore's famous phrase from – Because we're so funny. <laughs> We make that's, Al Gore jokes and laugh. That's how, that's how, Charlie Tree references still are are killing. But the without a controlling authority, right? A, a, a party, a smoke filled room, is and you know, look, I'm I'm this is very much on my mind right now because I'm writing a book about populism uh-huh. and its political history, and it's very much on my mind. But I would say that in the way that we had that populist sentiment supercharged by a new form of communication and connectivity has robbed us of some very important institutions that relate to – I'll put it this way. Richard Nixon resigned from office 
because the Republican Party told him to, right. essentially. Right. I, I don't take anything away from what he felt about wanting to spare his family or his administration sure, or the sure. good of the country or all those things. I'll, I'll grant him the benefit on all of those things. But in practical purposes, it was Barry Goldwater and his fellow Republican senators who said to Richard Nixon, right. you're done yeah. and you're not going to harm us. Without a strong party, that doesn't happen. If the Republican Party itself had not been strong – that it was an institution unto itself. We always know that, for example, the president always gets to pick the the chairman of his party, right. the chairman or chairwoman of his party. But that used to be an important, sort of like the king forming, the, going to the king for permission to form a government. Right. The balance of power used to be not so tilted towards the executive, and the party itself had real power yeah. and had real voice. Now. Look, I understand that it's undemocratic, and I understand that it has these problems, but I also say that in an era of weak institutions, I will be the only one. I, I will take the heat for that in, in what Mo Fiorina talks about, the great sorting, mm-hmm. where everybody in the 90s basically goes to right. uh, to their to their polar – there are no more – as you were talking about, no more liberal Republicans, mm-hmm. no more conservative Democrats. As that happens, without parties to enforce – not ideological strictures, because that's never really been a party's job, but without a party to enforce norms. Con- yeah, conduct and yeah, behavioral yeah, yeah. norms. I don't think I, I think we we need that. No, I look I agree. I'm 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 a I'm I think institutional pluralism is more important than than uh to a certain extent. You know, democracy good, need democracy. Gotta have it. But pure democracy is just the doctrine that says forty nine percent of the fifty one percent of the people get to pee in the cornflakes of forty nine percent of the people, right? <laughs> right. You need and the Bill of Rights is more important than democracy as far as I'm concerned. There you go. And institutional pluralism, which sort of divides people's loyalties and gives people an incentive to worry about the the fairness of the rules of the game, right, is is crucially important. And so it's not just the parties themselves that are falling apart, it's just the role the power of institutions across the board is falling apart. Which brings us to something that uh we both have strong views about changing gears just sort of slightly. What is uh, where do you come down on the uh, current state of the media? I I think that well, I, actually, this week, right now, I'm taking it, it will be it will be long gone by then. <clears throat> but right now, I'm taking submissions for my annual. I do one column a year where I talk about the best journalism of the year uh-huh. because I get. Absolutely exhausted by the reflexive uh, tribal media bashing that goes on. We are living in a golden age of journalism. There is such good stuff going on. I know the one that is going uh, – I can tell you now, Internet, the one that's going to win because uh, this will already have come out. The work done by the team at the Cincinnati Inquirer doing a week in the life of, of the heroin epidemic. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was great. We are living in a lot of ways in, in a golden age of journalism, and what people are doing is amazing. So I think it's important that we – pause to reflect on that consideration. We just don't we don't eat very much of it because our diets are in the food in the pyramid food pyramid of of journalism. Uh media criticism should be that little tiny triangle at the very top. Mm-hmm. Um I also have uh compared it to asbestos abatement where it should be left to professionals. It, Howie Kirch should have to put on the silver suit, the hazmat suit, and go in to clean yeah. out the – because it's toxic, it's counterproductive, and it's not – covering – the thought of having to cover what other people cover has always to me sort of been I can't, I can't get there. I can't yeah, yeah, do yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. I want to cover what people are doing. I want to cover the voters. I want to cover the politicians. I want to cover that stuff. 
I think that we are in such a swallowing our tail phase where media criticism, you know, look, the worst, the, the, when I started in 1993, when I was 17 years old at a newspaper, the work of things like what I do, horse race politics, mm-hmm. who's up, who's down, what's the map look like, what's the what's the poll say? That was a boutique. That was a super niche thing. Right. I, I, and, and I always compare myself to the weatherman. You don't have to take me seriously. I know some stuff about the way the polar vortex goes. Right. I, I can I can talk about it, and you can either find it interesting or not. But horse race politics was super boutique. Right. Even more boutique was media criticism and talking about what's sure. wrong with the press. Because, frankly, who cares? Right. The consumer is here to talk about what's happening, not what somebody else said about what's happening. And the degree to which media criticism has subsumed so much valuable real estate right. in our brains and in our broadcasts and in our writings, um, I think is really unfortunate. And I think that... It's also very meta, right? Oh, man. Everyone is getting sort of outside of their own head and thinking about the coverage of the coverage of the coverage. And Trump is so good at exploiting that because he knows, he knows that the one thing that we can never resist talking about is ourselves. Yeah. Never resist it. So when he goes and bludgeons some media outlet, with takes a shillelagh to the side of their head. Yeah. And he knows what's going to happen. He knows that instead of covering the news – that there will be a, well, we have to stand up for journalism. We have to stand up for this stuff. Let me tell you something. Journalism faces serious threats right now. And I don't know whether you heard, if, if, I, if you haven't heard it, I will send it to you. Chris Wallace gave the most remarkable speech. He was getting a very hoity-toity award for toitiness, mm-hmm. uh, for journalism excellence and perspicacity. And he was there at the Reagan building in the huge lobby and assembled at his feet as he stood up on the dais was the the luminaries of Washington journalism sure. out there. And he gave a speech and he started out and he tore the leather off of Donald Trump for what he said and the threat that he poses to journalism mm-hmm. and in a very unsparing way talked yeah. about talked about that. And then... He's so good. So then he waits, and everybody's like, oh, yes, quite so. (laughs) You know, he's stroking every journalistic erogenous zone. And then he drops the hammer on him and says, but you are screwing up too, are playing his game. (laughs) You're getting in the arena with him. Instead of covering him like the president, you are in the arena with him. And he called out people by name. He called out. It was a- How come- come it was it's lit. It's not been written up as much. I have not seen this. If you subscribe to the Halftime Report, you would get it. No. I uh, do, but you can't go to uh, – anyway, go <laughs> doesn't on. come out till 7 at night. Yeah. Uh, ha- it's halftime of a longer day. The We did cover it, and we did, we did put it out there. Uh-huh. But, of course, sadly, the my team or your team effect – so we've seen the kind of cancels it out. No one wants to promote it because both sides got Bo- hurt, because right? both right fair, fair even handedness. Yeah, people say they want it, but do it's sort of like what do you want? Well, I want bipartisan. Uh, I want bi- bipartisan cooperation. And I want compromise. And of course, we all what we all mean is I want compromise in the sense that I want that other idiot to give up his stupid and right. immoral ideas and right. agree with me. It's like when people say, you know, the time for debate is over. What they mean is you should <laughs> shut up and agree with me. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Now, now is the time. I um, I think the degree to which journalists and journalism have become part of the story is regrettable. I think that 
uh, I am I am fine with what's happened in the larger sense of getting over. I I'm I'm sure that I won't see this movie that's coming out about the Washington Post and the Pentagon Papers. Yeah, I'm very reluctant. Which looks like a prequel to All the President's Men. Yeah, and. I'm sure I won't, but I think that those lofty ideas that what was the movie they made about um uh Chud? <laughs> <laughs> no, I believe it was Hot Dog Two. Uh, no, uh, I loved Hot. I love Hot Dog. Yeah, hot Dog. Yeah, yeah, hot Dog. Yeah. My my friends' uh, parents had HBO, and getting to see Hot Dog the movie uh, at like eleven at night broadcast was a life. Let, let me just assure you, I'm sorry, America. That was a life changing moment. For yeah, yeah, this no, no. Ten year old. The, the, the nudity was important. Um, <laughs> it, was uh, mean, it was meaningful and artistic. What, what was the guy? Peter Berg, the director, he was A.J. Krasnitsky. He had some Polish name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ski movie, right? Right, right, right. right. Obviously. Yeah. um, I'm just – I'm worried now if I'm thinking of ski school instead of hot dog, you know. Hot dog dog is to ski school as Cannonball Run is to Smokey and the Bandit. Okay, okay. Fair. All right. All right. Because both both classics – Awesome. It's similar to – Chained Heat versus Cage Heat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in terms totally. of women's prison movie. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, um, uh, <laughs> but the movie I was trying to think of was the one about um, Edward R. Murrow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With, Clo- with, I was with Clooney. Clooney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so th- the, and that was made at, at the last journalism panic, which yeah. was the Iraq War. Yeah. And the journalists have let us have allowed Bush lie, people died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all of these things. We need to have a long look at journalism. The idea of the perfect um, – what Hollywood often portrays and what popular culture often holds up as a journalist, the, the perfect journalist is a perfectly scrupulous arbiter of fact with no views or opinions of their own particularly until – they are faced with the moment where they have to violate all of those norms yeah, that's right. that's norms right. and rules in order to do justice and blah, 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 blah. I think that's unfortunate in a couple of ways. I think that I, you and I as journalists, you occupy a different space, but you and I in the space where we're journalists are like jurors or just like voters. We come to the moment as ourselves. We cannot leave who we are out of this. My experiences growing up in Ohio County, West Virginia, and being the son of a coal salesman, and where I went to college, and you know, all of these things make me bring me mm-hmm. to this to this point. So the 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 perfect objectivity part of it is foolish because there is no such thing for any human being. We are all ourselves. But we should try to be dispassionate we should try to be disinterested parties in this and but number two the part about now i want you to break the rules to tell the truth right and when i look at people beclowning themselves it's like now i will stand this is the outrage that will not stand yeah it's like bro you have no idea how many more outrages no, you're going I, I, to I agree. subject to no so it's funny i um i have a similar if i do talks on journalism all the time and, and let's let's be honest i mean one of the reasons why so many people do media criticism is because it is so unbelievably easy. It's easy. And and I grew up, you know, look, I used to be a media critic for Brill's Content, which was a magazine. Shut up. Are that, you kidding yeah, me? Yeah, I was their conservative media critic. <gasps> um, long story, Steve Brill felt like Did you did you love that magazine or hate it or what was that? I thought it was an inter- interesting magazine based on a ridiculous premise. That, totally. That people that there's a certain kind of nerd who loves reading consumer reports, 
But most people who read Consumer Reports read Consumer Reports because they're thinking about what to buy. Buying a car. Buying a car, buying a computer, buying some big ticket item. The That's idea why they charge 20 bucks for it. That there was a mass market interested in paying for a glossy magazine dedicated to what a bunch of ugly people do behind the scenes to, to report on environmental regulations and all the rest just struck me as absurd. I bet, though, that if the Internet hadn't eaten print, yeah. Brills or something like it could have worked. Could have worked. As a website. Well, no, I'm saying if the internet had never been invented. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah, yeah, as yeah. a print product for possibly. moment. Possibly, that's that, right. That the idea, the idea for, it, it's sort of like, I always thought George Magazine, uh, poorly executed, that there, there's always been this effort to try to have a culture and politics magazine, a, a place of merger of, of politics, culture, policy, and all yeah, of yeah. that stuff. And now, for example, Esquire continues to try to back its way into it yeah. to say, well, we're a fashion magazine, but we also have all of this, these hot, the searing hot takes. They're brutally, yeah. no, brutally I mean, hot. Uh, Esquire and GQ, um, which I think are fine as fashion magazines. And as Why we are both the pants know, so tight? <laughs> we, we both know. Honest to God. I, but I, I care so little about fashion. But my, whenever I see some of them do this sort of politics stuff, or like the the the, the chick from Cosmo, 17, whatever oh, the is. Oh, the Teen Vogue. Yeah, the, oh, Teen Vogue, that's it, right. I always, Woof. what I always hear is the subtext screaming between the, the lines is Fredo Screaming, I'm smart. I'm I'm not dumb like they say. I can do things. (laughs) Fredo, go to the airport. And I just don't care about the political opinions, right? It's just, it's sort of virtue signaling masked around as analysis. But, um, much like I have the same complaint about, so in, in, in which Jonah and Chris deplore media criticism and then criticize the media, I have the same complaint about sports. I have the same complaint about all of these things. The degree to which I, and there was an interesting thing, Taylor Swift. Uh-huh. Um, well, I officially have no opinion on what's what whatsoever. Uh, I I believe that uh, the 2016 election was uh, Hillary Clinton was Taylor Swift and Donald Trump was Katy Perry. Donald Trump was lols and shark costumes uh-huh. and if uh, I didn't mean it, if you're offended, I was kidding. Yeah. Uh, whereas uh, Taylor Swift is feeling everything very deeply, okay. very 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 deeply. The the angsty all this stuff, but. She was criticized recently. Taylor Swift was criticized recently for saying 2017 was, was a good great. year. Yeah, it was yeah. great. Now I didn't read the article because whatever, because I don't. Yeah. Uh, but I, I saw the criticism of her for, <laughs> for saying 2017 was great, and I thought, how dumb of a moment to be in, where music writers and culture writers and people who are dealing with these topics yeah. need you to say as an objective fact that 2017 was terrible. 2017. I should, and this is really, this takes us back to where we were. The most depressing thing to me about our political moment is how bad people think it is. Mm-hmm. 50 years ago, we were in the middle of basically the worst 12 years in post war life in America. Uh, from 63 to 75. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Was a hot mess. When you look at the number of bombings right. there were in California alone, it was yes. just unbelievable. Yeah. We, we had riots in 100 American cities. Assassinations. Assa- political assassinations run wild. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had all of these things. The beginning phases of disco. The beginning phases of disco, but the perfidy of the United States in dealing with the public on Vietnam. Yeah. All of these, all of this stuff was happening. Yeah. And I listen to people now say 2017 is the worst thing that, and it's like, guys, 
And both parties, both sides of the political divide are guilty of this in different ways. Yeah, that's fair. You have Republicans who are nostalgic. So when my one of my favorite poll questions, do you think things are better or worse than they were 50 years ago? Now, objectively, I think things are much better. Uh, there are cultural losses that we've experienced that there, there are things that are gone that are missed. But in terms of the quality of human life, the how things are, we carry supercomputers in our pocket. We have we have banished most diseases. Uh, interracial marriage is no longer elite. Like fifty years ago, There's a lot of good stuff. I agree. Many good many good things have happened. The percentage of Republicans who think that things are worse, objectively worse than they were fifty years ago, always amazes me. It's so high. Yeah. Um, so there's a nostalgia trip there among Democrats, though. There is the this idea that the moment that we're in now is so impossibly dire that these, you know, democracy dies in darkness. These are the worst moments. I tell you what, if the United States of America cannot handle the host of the Celebrity Apprentice becoming president, if 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 this is it, uh, if we're down for the count now, we were down before. No, that was the, that's one of the things. That's why I hated the Flight 93 elections. Oh, my gosh. Because right. people kept saying, you know, I mean, I think Hannity, our friend Hannity, um, our colleague Hannity, began every radio show for weeks on end. We're one election away from the end of America, and I didn't. I had not heard that. Yeah, I'd heard him say variations of that many times, and I find it grotesque. And because the whole point of America is that most of your life isn't supposed to be contingent upon a single election, and if it is, it's already over. I mean, the, what America is supposed to be is over. But um, this is where this is where I tell people. Well, if that's true, when when they say, well, the deep state is staging a coup, there's a coup, and what I say is, well, then I would buy turnips. I would buy turnips because yeah. t because turnips have they're easy to grow even in rocky soil, and they have enough vitamin C that you won't get scurvy. Because if we're at the point now where the deep state is manipulating the pr and drugging him right, or right, right. whatever and doing all this stuff, we're done anyway. So you might as well get out to about I would say Muddle T, West Virginia, plant some turnips. Get you a gun. And the great thing, other great thing is that if you buy bologna in the log, in the large log, and you mm -hmm. keep it basically cool, it'll last you a long yeah, time. So this is actually a recurring theme on this podcast of, of prepping for the apocalypse. <laughs> right, right. And uh, You and I are poorly prepped. Poorly prepped. But he, so he, the dilemma for me is, I mean, you got people in West Virginia, and if you can get to the hollers, you'll right, be okay, exactly. right? right? Exactly. I got to get to Alaska. Tough. And if I don't get, if the deep state doesn't give me like a six-hour Notice. I assume, I assume. I assume that you'll be grant. You and the other members of the deep state will be granted pass cards. That you'll be retinal scan. You'll get to the perimeter. Well, that's the thing is we are we are in the basement of the American Enterprise Institute, and there is in fact a high speed rail line from here to the fifty first state, which we're not allowed to tell you which the name. Obviously, of. Yeah, yes. to which, and awesome. it's to Mount Storm, from which you will be choppered out. Moving sidewalks, Andromeda string security. It's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Obvi obviously. All right, we'll, so we'll I, I, I'm going to give you a. a, a a counter – I can't even remember. I originally had a point to make when I was talking about the Brills thing, but you're just so mesmerizing in your Jedi mind trick kind of <laughs> talking that I can't remember what it was. But It's mostly bullshit. So first of all – oh, so I was talking about metacriticism being easy, right, And which is one of the things that why particularly 20-year-olds do so much of it these days. Oh, yes. And my first point about it, which I've made for 25 years now, is the most – I think most there was a time when most conservatives would have dropped the issue, mm -hmm. except for the fact that the mainstream media wouldn't admit it, right? right? And so the analogy I always use was like when your roommate in college drank your last beer. Right. And you're like, dude, you drank my last beer. And he's like, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. And I was like, dude, come on. You drank my last beer. Just say you admit it. And I don't care. It's fine. 
And they were like, no, I didn't. Dude, it's in your hand. Right. You exactly. drank, you're drinking maybe right now. Right just now. So when Dan Rather would say that liberal media bias was a myth, right. you know, all this kind of stuff, it would drive conservatives crazy. Of course. And they're like, my dad, who worked behind enemy lines, as he put it, as a newspaper man and as a syndicate editor for years and years and years. You're sitting um, on all that old Ziggy money, aren't you? Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, hey, he was friends with Charles Schultz. Get out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He actually just dis- sort of discovered uh, Scott Adams of Dilbert. Well, thanks. He did, yeah, well, it's a mixed bag, but I mean, it was a great. Dilbert was a great comic. Strip. It, it, yeah. it was it was a defeating kind of. I, uh, Dil, Dilbert is in the category of things where I don't understand why people find it funny uh-huh. to laugh at the, the 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 tragedy of their lives, the dehumanization yeah. of the office. But I, I, I never I know, but but I, mean, I don't think you get the movie Office Space without Dilbert. Mm-mm. Anyway, so but like my dad would be, he loved to hate the New York Times. Yeah, because the New York Times is a great newspaper. That and it had such pontifical authority that when it made such obvious mistakes, yes, it could, nah, no one really cares whether the Yadhe Flats, Nebraska, right. Picayune right. gets the name of someone wrong. But the Times was so haughty, right, and so denying of its biases. And so one of the things I remember my dad, to the point of frustration, would freak out about was that the Times insisted on referring to Fidel Castro as Doctor Castro. Oh yes, and. Yes. You know what he was? He had a law degree. Yes, he did. He was a doctor of laws, which meant that, like, literally everyone everyone right. in right. Washington should be called, you know, Dr. You know, yeah. Gowdy. Yes. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's just insane, right? And it was little things like that. And so I have this long spiel that I do for college students about the uh, history of media. And, and I'll ask you to I'll, – I'll do this as a uh, Ben Wattenberg style of interviewing. Well, I'll give you a long ramble, and then I'll say, do you agree with me? <laughs> right. um, would, would you say? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so it's interesting. If you go back and you read de Tocqueville, de Tocqueville says the backbone of America, I mean, I'm butchering the quote, but the essence of it is, is the backbone of America is association, and the backbone of associations is newspapers, right? Right. And for most of the 19th century, Newspapers were openly partisan. That's why you had the Arkansas Democrat Gazette and right. the whatever Republican leader and all that kind That's of right. stuff. And if you go back and you look at the way various newspapers covered, say, the Lincoln-Douglas debate. Yes. Right? So the Republican-friendly newspapers would say that Douglas was reduced to a quivering mass of exactly. – of, 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 my, you know, of, under Lincoln's fusillade of brilliance. Of brilliance, right. And, so, and, then, and then the Democrat paper would say – Lincoln had to be physically restrained by six men as he had been had been so humiliated by Douglas, right? An even more a gratuitous example of sniveling Lincoln. Yes. <laughs> and so you'd have to read multiple sources to get a sense of the fact. And parties were built around newspapers. Or, or also, I would say, take them less seriously. That's right. There's that too, right? And so this was the norm of media, not only in America, but in Europe. Right. And then what happens is you get the right, first with the telegraph – then with radio, and then really with television, there comes this myth of the objective reporter that you're talking about. Exactly. And so there's this idea that you just put a camera on something, you can just give the facts, and the journalist's interpretations can melt into the background. And what is fascinating to me is that that mental flip of a switch never happened in Europe. So the Guardian is still the Guardian, sort of Bolshevik, the, and it doesn't right. mean it's a bad newspaper, right. but it has a perspective. The, the Telegraph is the Torygraph, right? Th- this is the way, and um, and so in some ways, part of the argument I want to make is that the time from say 1932 
to say 1989, which was this period where the New Dealers and then the world, the great World War II vets were accustomed to trusting large institutions and mm-hmm. taking the word of government um, at face value. They worked through the system. They transformed journalism into this BS notion of a objective science. And now, rather and, than... And I, just as an aside, I think very much shaped by the experience of the Second World War, in which the press and the government worked in concert. No, that's exactly right. I mean, people... All the hand-wringing about flag pins, or remember what is face the guy from the Pen- from ABC News who would not answer the question about whether or not the Pentagon was a legitimate target on 9-11? Yep. You know, Walter Cronkite wore a uniform and submitted all of his copy to censors. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Um, and I think that's some of that nostalgia is yes. a big reason behind some of the Trump stuff. But so my argument would be that instead of... And I'm, part of this is devil's advocacy because I have real problems with some of the stuff going on in the media, but... What we're seeing in a lot of ways is less this erosion and degradation of journalism and more of a very turbulent, bumpy regression to the mean of what it was actually normal before this great parentheses from, say, 32 to 89. Well, Brookheiser talks about the bubble that basically is Pearl Harbor to Vietnam. Uh And he talks about the cultural bubble that takes place in that space. And I think journalism was a big part of that. And our concept of what journalism is supposed to be was defined in that era. Now, my father, a thoughtful man, but not a not not a philosopher. He was a coal salesman. He yep. was he was a coal executive. the The matter of how biased Time Magazine was mm-hmm. was, and I remember the moment where he threw away a Time Magazine, canceled his subscription, and switched to U.S. News. And I it was like I don't know what epi- what what edition it was, mm-hmm. but the the Part of conservatism that was, I think, in many ways the most endearing and the, the healthiest was the concept of being a plucky insurgency yeah. against a hyper-dominant media space, right. right? Much like your dad, like, oh, Dr. Castro, well, here you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sit on that. Uh, the fighting the power of the establishment press gave a lot of – animated a lot of conservatism, I think, in the 20th century. and in- Yeah, I mean, as a side note, that's, I mean, there's a long history of conservatives being, you know, cons- I should say conservatives and pornographers. Right. Being early adopters of new technology. Right, so. Right? Uh, direct right, so. mail, AM radio, the distributed DVD, the internet, you know, I mean, NRO was very early adopter on all that stuff. Beca- anyway. Because much like with porno, the consumers are motivated to find it. That's right. Motivated. And, and the mainstream establishment is shuts it out shuts it out right so so what happened i think to conservatism in a lot of ways you know fox was a lot more successful than anybody including its founders ever expected right talk radio was a lot more uh lucrative successful. yeah much more lucrative and much more successful than people imagined that it would have been mm-hmm. and the way that the world has changed since 1996 which i is sort of for me the, i pick as a somewhat arbitrary pivot point mm-hmm. but that's the year fox is launched that's the year that the internet gets Interneting. Mm-hmm. That's when the that things really get cooking in the mid '90s, ahead of impeachment, ahead of a huge roiling phase, yeah. uh, and all of those things. Conservatives, much like the U.S. war in Afghanistan, uh, conservatives failed to declare victory at a timely moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, conservatives yeah. Uh, are. It is true that the concept of the academy and most of the press dominated by liberals is still true. However, 
conservative voices are heard. They are heard loud. They are heard clearly. They're, the idea of the squelching of the platform and having to go look in, you know, National Review was a miracle for young conservatives in America. In the same way the Washington Times when it was long. I remember yeah, when the yeah, Washington I Times remember. started because it seemed so um, naughty. It seemed yeah. so, how can this be that there's a conservative newspaper that is standing yeah. up to the great Washington it Post? Was, it was like getting a newspaper from Earth 2. Exactly. You know, it was really kind of wild. You know? Exactly. And and I remember being brought a copy of the Washington Times from somebody who was in Washington. I was a kid. Somebody brought me a copy. And it was like, can they really do that? Yeah. Well, the answer now in 2017, almost 2018, is, yep, you can do it. Yeah, you yeah. can have whatever you want. You can be as conservative as you want. You can you can be a Flight 93 conservative. If, if you are a Flight 93 Republican, you can have a whole website and all this content devoted to you. If you're a Federalist kind of Republican, and I mean in the small – or a capital F way, uh, there, Ben and his team have a whole website just for you. And there's all of this stuff. And I think that part of the problem for Republicans, reflexively blaming the press, lets them off the hook – for their own problems mm-hmm. um, and because it's sort of – I always say it's like the Russian winner when people say, well, the Russian winner defeated Napoleon. The Russian winner defeated uh, Hitler. No. They have the winner every year in Russia. Your job is to know that that's true. That's right. Russians defeated those armies, right. not not their winner and the, the ill prepare of the others. Whenever I hear Republicans complain about media bias, it's like, yep. Bro. Yeah. All right, so this raises an interesting point, and I know we're running long on time, um, and you've already spilled the beans about what you thought the most surprising thing was. But, um, you know, I hear constantly, constantly that um, – and whenever whenever you hear a Republican or a White House defender of, of, of Trump out there, they always go to the fact, well, he's not getting good coverage, right? Now, I think that's objectively true, right? Sure. I mean, I, I basically think it is uh, – Everyone is getting what they deserve, as far right. as I'm concerned on right. this, right? But Hurricane Harvey also did not get much favorable coverage either. I would point out. Fair enough, right? <laughs> and and one of the things I found so fascinating is how Donald Trump and the Trump White House has not been interested in messaging the good stuff, right? You know, um, I mean, only recently have they started to say, "Oh, by the way, we beat ISIS." Right? No, that's a good talking point, right? right. Um, I think I think it personally as as a matter of just rank punditry, I think it's a bad idea for them to rely so much on the Dow. Oh boy, you ain't you ain't yeah. lying. Particularly given why, given how the constituency that he is at, at the core I, of his base. I, I think I think that's part of it. But I think from a much more practical point, it just could go down any minute. It it, it, it it's not could go down. It will because that's right. what they do. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I agree. It, I mean, it it. It could go down at any minute. It will go down at some Eventually. Point. Yeah, it, it has to. Right. It, it, it has to. And But there was a time when presidents of both parties actually put into their thinking about a policy and a mm-hmm. program how to deal with the media and how to roll something out in a sophisticated win to win popular support. As far as I can tell, Donald Trump has zero interest in doing that. Mm-hmm. Save except to get accolades from some of our colleagues at Fox News. Well, and and the idea that victimology – presidents disdained previously the idea of embracing victimhood. Right. Trump, on the other hand, makes, makes a virtue of it. Yeah. He says, I, who is the real victim here? I am the real victim here. I am the victim of the deep state and I am the victim of the press and I'm the victim of these Republicans and I'm the victim of those Republicans. And what is interesting is the kind of sort of rectitude, you know, you expect presidents 
And I think Trump has changed to some degree um, or been changed. The degree to which presidents wanted to broadcast a sense of strength, certainty, assurity, institutional the predictability, predictability, yeah. but but the you know the the state of the union is strong. Right. Um, Trump has only belatedly come to embrace the idea of saying we are good at what we do yeah. and good things are happening here. That has only really been in the last couple of few weeks. Yeah. Well, there's no reason to bet it will last either. But. No. Well, and but we remember that Trump is like the children of Israel, which is we he <laughs> he is uh, brought low by his failure to adhere to the the rules he he mm. he violates the rules and is taken off into slavery in Babylon or in Egypt and there he suffers until he cries out oh lord please deliver me from these slings and arrows at which point he becomes willing to listen and john kelly or whomever he, the the window opens and the president becomes willing to say you cannot say that anymore yeah. you cannot go there anymore and he is chastened and he says i shall and he does it until it gets good again and then the next thing you know, ball, the golden calf pops right back out. And they're like, I don't know why I ever listened to you, yeah, losers. Ball, he always gets you. Um, <laughs> so I um, – this actually brings us back around to what we were talking about at the beginning. Is, is So we were talking about the economy is stupid and Carville and all that kind of stuff. I, I'm of the opinion that people care about the economy, but they also care about the social issues and cultural issues. They also care about liking the president himself. Yes, and feeling comfortable with this person. So Obama, the economy was not going great with him in 2012. Right. And 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 Romney listened to a bunch of people say, who said, it's the economy stupid, it's the economy stupid, that's what you need to be talking about. And the problem was is that the coalition that was sufficient to get Obama elected said, yeah, okay, maybe the economy's not doing great, but I really like Barack Obama. And I really dislike Mitt Romney. And I really it's dislike vampire Mitt Romney. Yes. And so this is this getting back to the rank punditry, I think is the fundamental problem that Trump has or the Republicans have with the real Republican base of the suburbanite yes. Republican voters who either don't like Trump or don't like what he but or more importantly, I'm a I'm an inveterate eavesdropper. I'm really bad about it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Airports, restaurants, totally. all I that do kind of it stuff. shamelessly. And it is amazing how much Trump, my kids' school, you know, Trump is saturated into people's conversations. Yes, and and a lot of people don't like it. Right. And I think that is why a lot of those, you know, Jay Cost uh, wrote a good piece for us at NRO the other day about how Trump is losing these gettable Republican voters, particularly gettable Republican women, simply because. They don't like the drama, and they don't like the violation of presidential norms, right. and the uncertainty, and the crudeness, or be, or being embarrassed, or being embarrassed, right? And you know these moral voters that Crosshour is talking about, and the the problem for Republicans, the tension that exists between embracing populism, and so Trump is this Williams Jennings Bryan figure. You have right. a guy who has brought the populace into the party, but now the party that ta- I'll put it this way. The tax plan that the Republicans passed is not what you would have said coming out of Donald Trump's no. primary campaign right. and really through the general up until the end when he was chastened and put ball away for a while. The 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 idea of a huge corporate tax cut as the centerpiece yeah. of Republican legislation after a populist – Which I favor, but I agree with you on the politics. After a, after a populist revolt in your own party, this, this would be saying, I know what we need to do. We need to slash corporate taxes yeah, yeah. deep, deep, deep. Yeah. Um, it, it tells me that the cognitive dissonance 
within the Republican, within the, the shared Republican brain is uh, intensifying and that that's a very difficult coalition to keep together. Though Democrats will find that these suburbanites who they wish to woo, and a lot of people write about it, E.J. Dion and others have written about this new Democratic Party that will subsume, will absorb all of these white college-educated people in the yeah. suburbs. Uh, there's a lot of tension there, too. No, I, I agree. I agree. And um, there's also just – and I know you don't necessarily want to touch this, but there's it also exposes a certain amount of cognitive dissonance on the part of the pro-Chubb conservative punditocracy. Sure. Huge. Where I can't tell you how many friends of mine would tell me in green rooms and whatnot that – their main reason for they didn't like Trump's crudeness, they didn't right. like what he was saying, but they loved Trump's voters and they wanted to defend them against the charge that they were ba- they were just right. a bunch of hicks and yokels and nasty racists, and that these are actually good people and they've been left out, the forgotten man, and they love them. And I just and and Trump is 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 become an avatar for them, so they wanted to defend he's, Trump, he's right? An imperfect vessel, but right. But these are good and decent people, and they deserve right. more respect. And okay, I don't think that whether you want to call them journalists, Republican intellectuals, or whatever, should see themselves as as pure advocates for any right. constituency like that. But fine. Not right. everybody agrees with my vision of these things. But when Trump breaks to being a Dow 5,000, yeah. you know, whatever guy and a corporate tax cut guy, so many of these people broke to defend Trump rather than defend the guy who is supposedly being the William Jennings Bryan vessel of those people's interests. And the, so then you get to the next layer. And the next layer is the Republicans who made a, not an unreasonable choice, which was when it became evident, the, 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 the spasms, the pitiful spasms that the Republican Party went through, when it was like, well, Kasich and Cruz will alternate states and they'll block Trump this way. No, we'll block him at the convention. Actually, there's a rule that if you wear a hat, a penguin <laughs> on your head as a hat, then the uh, marshal of the Supreme Court can actually actually invalidate the uh, balloting at the convention. Right. If we were in Italy, you would have gotten the top bunk. Exactly. That kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. All of that uh, magical thinking that Republicans engaged in, as it became evident that Donald Trump, by sitting on a third to 40 percent of the Republican electorate in a crowded field, had successfully bowled his way through. Yeah. He had taken base strength and t- tipped over a lot of people who thought they were going to be uniters. He said, I'm going to divide more effectively than you, mm. and I'm going to push through. And he did. The much of republicans and i republicans i respect and who are moral good people made a choice which they had opposed trump right up until he crossed over to inevitability mm-hmm. at whatever point that was super tuesday whatever said okay this is happening now how can i use this moment to get as many these are the i call them gorsuch republicans how can I get as many things that I want out of this situation? Yeah. And those are the people who designed this tax plan. Yeah, no, that's right. That's exactly right. Those are the people who designed this tax plan, which was, okay, you can be the tribune of the people and you can throw poop at people. You can do yeah, yeah. whatever. You can uh, complain about Jonah Goldberg's pants. Yeah. You can do whatever you want as long as we get the tax cut, as long as we get the Supreme Court, as yeah. long as we get the – what. And, and Mitch McConnell is sort of the high priest yeah. of, this, of this cult. Yeah. And – we don't have time to get into it, but that's the sort of the great irony of Bannon going out there claiming to be <laughs> the champion of Trump's agenda, and yet the only person who get Trump's actual agenda, agenda across through. are these people that he hates. You exactly. know? It's it's tough. And But I will say this before you kick me out. Uh-huh. There is one thing that I, I am really, really surprised about, about being in Washington. I think people should should know this. It's no different than any place else. 
it is there there are folk there are cultural folkways here that are weird and different and the people are terrible but there are terrible people in Pittsburgh too um Washington the and I love Pittsburgh um Washington is not the people here are not so different and the reason I say that is for young people the uh, when I came to Washington it was like oh my gosh I don't know if I can hang here mm-hmm. I don't know if this is the show I've come to the big leagues and it's like after I go oh for good and for ill, yeah. you're, the, you're just a, you're a larger concentration of the same jokers I've been dealing with for the past twelve no, years in right. Charleston, West Virginia. I mean, every now and then you meet someone who is either amazingly brilliant, yeah, or amazingly charismatic, right? But about you know, as someone who has been in every green room in Washington, yeah, 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 um, you get around most of them. <laughs> um, uh, most of them are just I don't want to say unimpressive people, but they're not. It is right. not like, oh, my gosh, I can't have a conversation with this person. The, you know? the experience of finding out who someone is after the fact, that's a Washington phenomenon that I've had, um, which I'm sure Jack has all the time, which is after the fact, you're like, oh, that guy was cool. Who was he? And they're like, oh, that was the uh, Secretary of Homeland Security. Yeah, and no, you're I, like, really? Yeah. If for real? Okay, yeah. cool. That's I did right. a lot of those. I had dinner one night at a table with uh, Paul Clement when he yeah, was the yeah. – Solicitor General? It was the Solicitor General. And he looked so young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was like, you know, when you find out that the people now, it's, I don't know if I feel old or whether they're too young. And I'm like, like, Reince Priebus is like 47 years. I'm like, no, you're no. the chairman of the Republican National. You're 47 yeah. years old? What are you doing? I always think, well, like with the Clement thing, I was just, I, I, I think I asked him who he interned for. <laughs> but, um, good uh, work. Hey, you got a good gig. And by the way, if you need a place, we're looking for a new roommate over yeah, at my row house. And he was a real nice guy about it. It was funny. <laughs> but um, I kind of always think of that, that scene in, a, in one of the least appreciated uh, David Mamet movies. The, the, was it The Edge? The one with yeah, yeah, yeah. Alec yep. Baldwin. And, yep. um, um, and there's that scene where... Um, What's his name? Hannibal Lecter. Um, Anthony Hopkins says, "What one man can do, another man can do." When they're trying to figure out how to kill the bear. Yep. And it turns out that the nut. I mean, like, like I met Pat Moynihan when I was in my twenties, and he was one of the last sort of giants, giants of the twenties. Real giant. Yeah. The only person I will say that was always the guy you thought he was, even in relaxed moments, was Judge Bork. I bet Judge Bork was intimidating. Well, that you beard having, alone. The yeah. beard alone. When you were having a polite conversation with him, he was still an intimidating dude. Ramsey's the second. Yeah, no, there really was, was, there's a lot of that. Um, oh, well, Chris, it's been great to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And I just want to point out that uh, Sunny Bunch's podcast is worse than yours, Oops. and uh, all glories and hosannas to your podcast, which is far superior to Sunny Bunch's and inferior to your own. Well, obviously, yeah, well, yeah <laughs> it has Dana Perino on it, and that's bacon true. jokes. That's yes, true, quite so. Um, and if I said anything in, in untoward or improper towards Dana, I apologize. No, no, no. You, I think I, I, I'm a member of the fan of the, it was, the it, Dana Prina fan. It, it was an appreciation. Yeah. All right. All right. Great to be here. Thank you. And thanks to everybody else. What one man can do, another can do. What one man can do, another can do. Say it again. What one man can do, another can do. Say it again. What one man can do, another can do. All right. So first of all, thanks a bunch to Chris Dyerwald, who has now left the building. I have now in here... Jack Butler and and Michael Pratt, Michael being the host of Filler Words, the indispensable communications podcast, and um, we are again recording this um, a couple days before a few. Well, we're, we're, what is the date today? The twentieth, the nineteenth. This 20th, is the twentieth, twentieth of December, and so 
you know, when you're huddled in some sort of rain gutter dugout underneath a freeway as the uh, hordes of motorcycle bandits are running around. Uh, the chuds? Not chuds? Well, chuds? Chuds don't ride motorcycles. Um, Not yet. Yeah, well, no, look, I mean, listeners, first of all, chuds are cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. And it was one of the signature B, I don't know, maybe C <laughs> sci-fi horror movies of my youth. And uh, maybe D, I mean, it was not good. It was really not, 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 not. This is mega piranha level. Yeah, but it, like there's a camp to that stuff, right? I mean, the stuff on sci-fi channel is. Yeah, there's an affect to it now. Yeah, I mean, like uh, like Sharknado. I yeah. mean, the thing that sort of made me realize that they're they're not taking this seriously was when the flying sharks would come at you and they would shoot them and all of a sudden their trajectory would change <laughs> and they would fall to the ground as if the sharks had the power of flight. But if you shot it in air, it would then just plummet down like if you had killed Superman, he would fall to the ground. When instead, the whole point of Sharknado was that they were projectiles that were just being carried on right. the wind. And so, you know, it just, it all fell apart for me. Um, Very nuanced critique of Sharknado. Yeah, no, that, if that's my biggest problem, then I got a problem. <laughs> uh, but speaking of it, I have, uh, so I have, I have a major apology. I want to get it out there before there's a reaction to this podcast. When Starwalt and I were talking about semi-soft porn uh, ski movies from our youth, of course I have seen Hot Dog and Ski School but I was actually think the Peter Berg movie was actually Aspen Extreme, and I apologize. This is this is a grotesque violation of canonical norms, and it was a huge mistake of mine. But you've never heard of any of these movies. Yeah, but I think grotesque violation is an, is a different movie, probably. <laughs> <laughs> probably it's 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 a um, it's also a fetish of some kind, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and uh, but no, the, the 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 it's funny. So like, have you guys seen Hot Tub Time Machine? Right. So Hot Tub Time Machine is a, a thinly veiled shot at my generation. I mean, like John Cusack is probably the same age as I am, right, or is close to that. And it is a inside joke about the ski movies that we grew up on, oh. um, which are all about, like, you know, crazy kids. You know, it was sort of, Porky's was a little before, a little before my time. I mean, not really... But it was sort of like what Animal House was, is sort of the, the excuse to have women take off their tops. So you you guys just didn't use the internet? There was no internet. Uh, no. Uh. What? <laughs> so you know, there's. I was informed that there's a reality TV series in which millennials are forced to live in a house that doesn't have any like modern convenience. So basically all that means is that there's no Wi-Fi. <laughs> 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 and I, I'm sort of... In, in, Do they have plumbing? I mean... Yeah, it's like yeah. everything but Wi-Fi, which I don't... <laughs> I don't think that would be... That would, I would find that kind of... Uh, Relieving, like what, I'd be, I'd be what, happy. What channel is this on? I think it's MTV. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what it's called. I, I should have looked this up. I meant to look this up because I wanted to go on it just so that I could have a vacation. <laughs> the, uh, the first, I think, the, legitimately, the first reality show that started the end of Western civilization was Real World, which was on MTV when I was like your age, and there was a great Saturday Night Live parody of it <laughs> where uh, Norm Macdonald played Bob Dole, and all he kept doing was complaining. Who stole Bob Dole's peanut butter? Um, which was kind of awesome. Any other things that we need to wrap up from this conference? What did you? Get? Michael was not in the room for this, but uh, since this is the, for us, it's the last podcast of 2017, and it's going to be our first podcast of 2018, right? When this comes out, 
Uh, no, it'll come out next Wednesday, right? Oh, so like the 27th, or, 28th? Okay, so we can actually raise standards in 2018. Yeah, yeah we can. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay. By next Wednesday, by the time that I that people lis- are listening to this hear me say the words next Wednesday, they will already have been anachronistic. This, is, this podcast exists out of time. But anyway, say hello to the people of the future. <laughs> yeah, hi, <laughs> hi guys. <laughs> Buy Bitcoin. Any predictions we want to sneak in? <laughs> um, all right. So, what are you guys doing? So, anyway, uh, I figure there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be hiding from their family over the holidays. Are going to be puttering around. Going to be driving in their car, taking their kids to things. Um, and so, I know that this podcast went long. Uh, Chris Starwald, I think, is the first guest that we've had on this podcast who literally verbally overpowered me and just kept talking. <laughs> uh, normally I do that to other people. So maybe this will be my wife's favorite podcast because she thinks I talk too much on this thing. Yeah. Uh, but is there – so there are a couple of things from the conversation itself that I wanted to bring up other than uh, the ski movies. Okay, because you're our millennial ombudsman. You didn't get all the references? <laughs> no, well, I mean, yeah. Well, okay, here's, here's a reference I didn't get then. Uh, when you were talking about Al Gore and the controlling legal authority, uh-huh. that was that was new to me. I looked it up while you two were talking, and it's a – it's something that I'm another aspect of Al Gore's history. Yet, just another he keeps coming up on this podcast. He kind of does. It's yeah. like an onion. There's not, not, do you remember No Controlling Legal Authority? They, I'm okay. So, in the was it ninety ninety seven ninety seven? Yeah. The, I mean, it's amazing to think in our political climate right now how these stories would have been covered. I actually worked at, for this television production company back then that would put out a PBS series called Follow the Money that was dedicated basically just to covering these scandals. But the Clintons brought in an enormous amount of Chinese money, very sketchy Chinese money, un, 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 undocumented Chinese money. And some people thought that he bought the election, whether or not he did. And there were a lot of indictments. A lot of people fled the country rather than you know uh, have to testify. And what? That, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That happened in the Clinton administration? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's unbelievable. And at some point... Al Gore did something very bad. He spoke at a Buddhist temple or something like that. I mean, I don't remember all the details, but he gave this terrible press conference where he kept saying over and over and over. I mean, it must have been like 13, 14 times. um, Let me be clear. There is no controlling legal authority that says I shouldn't have done whatever it was that he did. Oh, you don't. So I looked up. I found an Andy McCarthy piece from 2009 saying Uh that he he was making fundraising calls from the White House. That's what it was. Okay, yeah, yeah. And he was calling sketchy people and yeah. all the rest. And um, But it was part, at the time, it was part of this larger fog of scandals about him. And the joke just became how he just kept saying no controlling legal authority over and over again, which to me was always a perfect example of how, you know, Bill Clinton, brilliant at legalistic parsing. You know, it depends on the meaning of is and all that BS. And Al Gore tried to do it and was just really, really bad at it. Uh, he hadn't been fully updated yet. Yeah, yeah. No, so in other words, Clinton wanted to be taken seriously and literally. It was very important to be taken literally. Bill Clinton counted on the fact that no one would possibly imagine he was that clever a liar. <laughs> and so, like, uh, I mean, not to get too purient in here, but we've already been talking a bit about erotica. In his deposition or in his claims with about the stuff with Lewinsky he claimed that while she may have been been having sex with him but because he didn't reciprocate with any sexual touching of any kind he wasn't doing anything with her so in other words if you tell your wife if you just hold super still while some woman's having sex with you 
you're not really having sex with them and see how well that flies. But. I feel your pain. <laughs> uh, well, since you since we're talking about sex anyway, uh-huh. I want to revisit the comparison that you seemed to make with ease during your conversation with Chris Starwalt of conservatism with pornography. Uh-huh. Both of them being early adopters of technology with a, a, a consumer base that will that is very enthusiastic about pursuing the goods it desires. I just thought I, I wondered like is your is this podcast's insistence upon putting erotica in the show like an attempt to hybridize the two? Is that what's going on? Well, I, look, first of all, I want to be very clear: there is no pornography on this podcast, and never has been. There is a difference between erotica and pornography. <sighs> okay, it's sort of like you know what's the difference between uh, um, what is it? Oh, how's it go? Gosh, there's some joke about what's the difference between kinky and erotic. And, like, erotic is you use a feather, and kinky is you use the whole chicken. Okay? <laughs> we never go whole chicken on this podcast. And, um... Like, uh... Oh, um, Not even going to analogize. And, yeah, no... <laughs> Let no, that stand. Careful where you go with that. And so, you know, there are no... There's no obscenity. Other than, you know, of course, when we have Andy Ferguson on here, there are no, no yeah. obscenities. And... Man. And I've, you know, I sent Jack a link to the copious uh, stuff on Amazon of Star Wars erotica. Yeah. But I've decided we're going to wait to do that until after I've actually seen the movie to see okay. how comp- the newest one. Okay, well, then I'll keep my uh, Star Wars sexual analogy for after the new year. Okay, that, that, that's probably for the best. Um, and as, for the, as far as the early adopter thing, I think it's, it's, it's self-evident that sort of people who are People in cause it's not a value equation. I mean, I think conservatism is better than pornography, right? I would just break out there. Yeah. <laughs> web Although, traffic says otherwise. Well, web traffic says otherwise. And also, you know, some will argue that conservatism, it's sort of like what's better, a fork or a spoon, right? It, mm-hmm. the, the, the value of something is depending upon the context of the utility. And so, like, is a, a fork better for eating soup than a spoon? No. Is a spoon better than a fork for, you know, picking up? You get the point. And so pornography is better than conservatism for the things that pornography is good at. But I think that we, as as the three of us as pinnacles of Western civilization, can uh, make meaningful distinctions between these things and say that conservatism is not at all like porn in its first principles or what it's about. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, but as a, as a die marker of how technology unfolds and gets picked up by early adopters, I think there's a lot to it. Okay, fair enough. I think I just I'm thinking back to the the Robert Maplethorpe debates that I don't actually remember, and just that the whole the whole conflation of the two is sort of disorienting for me. So fair enough, fair enough. What are you guys doing for uh, the Christmas break? I'm leaving the swamp. If one truly can leave the swamp, returning to the heartland with no Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. I well that that if I were going to go on the show, but no, there will be Wi-Fi. You consider Ohio the heartland? I, I'm I'm just I'm trying to speak in the vocabulary of our moment. Okay, so I just by the way I got a text uh, notification just now on my phone. The house has approved the tax overhaul, so this whole conversation about taxes earlier will not be destroyed by events. And what are you doing, Mike? I'm going to see the in-laws in uh, New Jersey. My wife loves going to the historic New Jersey. Historic New Jersey, yes, <laughs> the armpit of America. <laughs> um, but my wife is trying to convince me to go to see the tree at Rockefeller Center uh-huh. while we're there. And I'm not sure about braving the crowds and all that. Yeah, the tree is better. The one thing I will insist that you don't do yeah. is go see the ball drop on New Year's Eve. Oh, no, no. That no. is no. 
Like, I, I, I get there are some extenuating circumstances. You bring relatives from out of town. Some people want to see these things. Like, but generally speaking, if they just – and it could avoid the police who have to be there. If you could just drop some sort of sterilizing mist – over that entire crowd, everyone would be better off. I mean, it is so bad. I did it a couple times. In, I did it once in college. And it's freezing cold. The line to get to use a bathroom at any of the bars is at least 50 people deep. And it's not like you see this amazing firework show. You, you see, see nothing. A you bright nothing. light move about 15 feet downwards at midnight. I, I got suckered in once, so that's the only time I've ever done it. But it's sort of like the restaurant scene in D.C. for New Year's Eve. It's not worth going out there either because all the good servers are, you know, taking the night off. Yeah. They have the prefix menus that are it's like frozen vegetables that they're bringing out. And you might as well stay at home and, you know, do something else. So one of my best friends, the guy who was actually the best man at my wedding, this guy Scott McLucas, um, he brilliantly got married on New Year's Eve. Ooh. And as 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 Michael knows, uh, Jack is still a committed bachelor, um, which is not a euphemism, people. And uh, there are certain holidays that, as time goes by, are a huge pain in the ass for husbands. Valentine's Day being the most obvious. Well, example. see, I killed that. I got married on Valentine's. Did you really? Yes, yeah. Oh, that's bold. I like it. <laughs> and because uh, that way, New Year's Eve or Valentine's Day, if you get married on those days, you know you're you're. You're you're invested and have to celebrate your anniversary anyway, mm-hmm. but you get to check two boxes, and it is in terms of like headaches and stuff. It is just a fantastic move. So I do. So I I have a great wife, and as part of this, I have actually convinced her to not go to dinner uh-huh. on Valent on our actual anniversary just because of what I just mentioned. But I do have to give her two cards. So that you know, that's, two that's, cards is fine. That's yeah. that's easy. My daughter was born on February 11, and I have told her. That when she starts dating, which I'm, since I'm raising the first secular Jewish nun, I'm hoping won't be for a very long time. <laughs> but whenever she finally does, she cannot put with any of this two-bit, let's just do your birthday and Valentine's Day together kind of thing. That just, that won't fly. But we're going to close out. I know there's just rambling here, but I just assume you guys would rather hear this than have to go talk to your in-laws wherever you are out there in America. There's always in-laws. They roam the land. <laughs> oh, and by the way, I'm going out to my in-laws, in, or my father-in-law. My mother-in-law passed away last year. I'm going out to Hawaii to be with my wife's family out I'm there. so sorry. You're, you're there. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's right. I, literally, as you're hearing this, I am in Hawaii smoking a cigar out, you know, out on the patio. So, can we make uh, sure we get this out by Wednesday morning so I can listen to this on my drive home from New Jersey? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> um, it's going to okay. be a really weird moment yes. when you hear that request on your drive. So the, defi- the defining word... Of our time, it's basically my spirit animal. It is how I feel every New Year's Eve. Is calls calls which is a butchered pronunciation of the Finnish word. It's K A L S A R I K A with an umlaut thingy, N N I T, and it means the feeling when you're going to get drunk home alone in your underwear with no intention of going out. <laughs> yes. And I am so not tempted to get tattoos, but I could see getting this tattooed somewhere. That's actually not true. I mean, I don't sit around getting drunk by myself on New Year's Eve, but I do. Um, my wife and I usually just do a picnic thing in our bed long before, because who staying up to midnight loses its thrill yeah. at a certain point. Um, yeah, well, I, I would stay up. Past midnight, if there are any good episodes of The Twilight Zone on sci-fi for uh-huh. the, during their marathon. 
Like if if they're at two a.m., I'll stay up. Or you could rent ski school hot dog in Aspen Extreme and be culturally literate and fluent for once. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. That's what those movies would do for me. All right. So my guess is that we've lost all but the most dedicated. Now here's here, okay. we're the remnant. We're at the remnant of the remnant. We are the remnant of the remnant. And so, so I, I can I, I can voice I can air some grievances that time that time of year. Right. It's Festivus. I'm a little put off. I mean, I understand that like niche podcasts like the Weekly Substandard are more likely to have intense fans because without those intense fans, who would listen to it? Mm-hmm. But it it annoys me that there are not very many sort of intense fans of the remnant willing to go to battle with the Weekly Substandard people and others and be jealous guardians of the superiority of this podcast. And that may be one of my goals in 2018 is to see if how we can get the cult of personality of this podcast up. And maybe that's why we got... Maybe maybe that'll be the usage of the the remnant uh, Twitter handle, yeah. which is Jonah Remnant, right? At Jonah yeah, Remnant. at Jonah Remnant. Yeah, and right now, basically, Jack just manages that. I don't have No, to... no, remember, it's sentient. <laughs> oh, that's right. I've it's lost o- control. It's, it's operating independently. And if anybody has any idea what we should be using that Twitter feed for, that would be great. But if you could sign up for it, it can't hurt us. It also can't hurt us. It can only help us if you please subscribe to this podcast. Download as many of them as you can. Um, that would be great. Reviewing it is great. We're doing great on reviews. Uh, but it's the subscription and downloads things that really matter. And we really appreciate the support and, and positive feedback we've gotten from a lot of people. It, it means a lot. Um, going into 2018, do you guys have any resolutions for the new year? Uh, make this podcast great again. <laughs> <laughs> we have to get back to the Andy Ferguson standard. Yeah, um, Michael? Uh, I, you know, I want to swear more on the podcast. So <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and we can institute a regime of bleeps. <laughs> I need to, I, I've put on some poundage over the holidays because I've completely given up my no carb ways for a while now. And I'm in 2018, I'm going to get back on that because I was sort of at maximum density for the book tour of my last book. And those YouTube videos still bum me out. And <laughs> so that's one resolution. And then the second resolution is I want this podcast to get weirder. I want to do more quirky, goofy stuff. And um, and also there will be a, mount, a, a, a degree of shameless, actually, yeah, truly shameless promotion of my new book, which will be coming out in April. I want to do lots of stuff related to it, a lot of the themes, um, a lot of – I also, you know, for the final version of it, I had to cut something like 80,000, 90,000 words out of it. Yeah, and force feed them to me because yeah. they, they wouldn't go anywhere else. And so I'm going to be doing a lot of sort of eggheady pieces for various magazines related to the stuff that I, I, I couldn't get in the book, which felt like killing children. And so be prepared to hear a lot of stuff about how Western civilization is awesome, how the Enlightenment was good, um, how markets are great, and how, D- how Deep Space Nine is not uh, given the credit it deserves as one of the great Star Trek franchises. Are you sure you didn't cut that out of one of the drafts? Because I don't remember seeing that. That may not be in the book, but it's true. Oh, okay. You know, and so truth, truth is eternal. <laughs> so I want to thank Michael and Jack uh, for all their help with this thing. It's still a work in progress and experiment, but we're really, at least I'm thrilled by the success of it. And I want to wish everybody a very Merry Christmas, a very Happy New Year, a fantastic Kwanzaa, and any other thing that you might be celebrating. Festivus. And, and Festivus, of yeah. course. Solstice. Solstice. Life Day. Life Day. Uh, uh, is it Wookiee Life Day or just Life Day? Uh, why would Wookiees call it Wookiee Life Day? 
Good point. That's good. And so, like, in Brazil, they just call them nuts. Right? It's like that kind of thing? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. You're right. <laughs> All right, guys. We're done. This is really stupid. Uh, thanks again. Really appreciate it. Bye. Bye. 